Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is our creative editor, Tim Nudd. Tim, thanks for joining. Thanks a lot for having me. And also back is uh, Stephanie Patrick, our executive web editor. Steph, so good to have you back. It's so great to be back, David. Well, we are fresh back from uh, the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity in the south of France. Uh, Tim and I have been there for the past week, along with a passel of other uh, Adweek folks. Many of them stayed to go explore Europe after, which is cool. Uh, but uh, because of that, we don't have too many more to bring on to the show to talk about it. But uh, Steph has been holding down the newsroom <laughs> in our absence. Uh, so we will be uh, bringing her on board to talk about what she's been seeing uh, from the New York side and also just kind of uh, stuff to get your feedback on some of these campaigns that we saw uh, getting a lot of play in Cannes. We've got some big news, uh, some of it coming out of Cannes, some that's uh, broken even since. Uh, instead of our usual uh, ads worth watching, we are going to talk about some of the hidden gem ads that we uh, found at Cannes, which is always one of the nice side benefits. We're also going to talk about our list of the most powerful women in sports. This is our second year that we published that. It just came out this week. Uh, so excited to talk about that. And of course, we're going to have a big recap of Cannes and everything that happened and the controversies and the big winners and all that fun stuff. But first, the news. All right. Well, today, the big story uh, is uh, coming out of the beginning of the week is that WPP, the largest company in advertising, this is the biggest of the major holding companies that owns tons of uh, agencies around the world. Their digital presence was largely ground to a halt uh, today by a cyber attack in, the, in Ukraine. Uh, details are still a little sparse, so we don't have too much more to tell you at this point, although I would recommend keeping an eye on adweek.com, where we're going to be posting updates on this one. But what's fascinating about this is you know, this cyber attack, which seems to be a ransomware attack, they're apparently charging people $300 in bitcoins to kind of get access to their uh, you know, to their websites and their equipment uh, back. Uh, and supposedly uh, something like 11 uh, entities had already paid them because uh, it's targeting not just WPP. It's hitting all sorts of companies, uh, Russian oil company and and all sorts. So 
pretty huge. Uh, and this follows just about a month after a similar attack uh, from a, a tool called WannaCry uh, that got a lot of attention. And so to me, what was most fascinating about this, the WPP website is down. Their emails are down. They had to call us like cavemen to uh, <laughs> to comment on this. And it's, uh, you know, I think, again, how serious is this? How long will it last? That's hard to say. Uh, but it certainly highlights, you know, in a world where agencies really are struggling to build themselves as, you know, really valuable service providers and in a data-heavy environment, this is, a you know, the kind of black eye that you really don't want. Um, and uh, and you you can bet that in addition to WPP freaking out today, uh, that surely all the other major holding companies in uh, in advertising, uh, you know whether it's Omnicom or Publicis or uh, you know any, any of these major groups that own all these own all these agencies, they are certainly. Uh, having internal discussions right now about how can we possibly avoid this. So uh, not much more to add at this point, but uh, like I said, definitely keep an eye on our site. And uh, last I checked, the WPP website was still not up. Uh, so hopefully for their sake, uh, they will recover control of their assets again. But it also goes to show, you know, no one's immune. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, it'll be interesting to see the security protocols that uh, a lot of these companies put in place after this and whether those will be effective. Can't imagine how stressful it's got to be if you're in production on a campaign right now and suddenly your entire digital network goes dark. Yeah, I mean, it really does highlight. I mean, we've seen this too. Everyone sees this on a smaller scale where something happens to your, you know, internet access or you switch over to a new server like we have a few times in the last year, you know, with Adweek going independent from our, our previous holding company. You know, every time we do something like that, if anything goes wrong, man, you just, your whole operation grounds to a halt. And that's without the stress of knowing that there's a ransomware attack, you know, kind of hovering over. <laughs> It or right. what kind of <laughs> what kind of data they might have had access to? I mean, yeah, it's stressful enough even when there's no malicious figure involved. Absolutely, and even when we've like lost you know Wi-Fi connection for four minutes, it seems like an eternity. So I can't I can't believe that you know here in the middle of the afternoon they're still down. They've got to be freaking out. Yeah, I always know when there's uh, I, I'm not based in the main office, uh, it, nor is Tim, and so I always know when there's uh, internet connection issues because there are like a thousand <laughs> tweets from the uh, Adweek employees <laughs> complaining about it. So obviously their phones still work. Um, but uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. Uh, another holding company uh, kind of controversy, uh, dramatic news story that came out in the past week. So, so right in the middle of Cannes, uh, Publicis, one of, the, one of the major holding companies based in France, they literally just got a new CEO, Arthur Sedun, uh, who replaced Maurice Levy uh, after many years. And uh, Arthur just became CEO, I want to say... At the beginning of June, am I right, Tim? It's like right at the end of May. Yeah, very, very re recently. Yeah. So this was one of his first. You know, they had this you know major uh, publicist meeting, and they announced uh, this thing called Marcel, which is a tool that's going to hopefully connect their tens of thousands of employees and and act as a sort of. You know, I've heard it described many ways as a you know communications platform, a uh, concierge. You know, there's all sorts of different ways, but they're basically his argument was you can't talk to brands that live in a platform world without having a platform, without understanding platforms. All that's mildly interesting, but what really uh, kind of got everyone's attention is that in the, in bundled in with these announcements, he said we are not going to be uh, entering any ad award shows for a year. And, you know, that's a big deal when an agency says it, but this is a holding company that owns many agencies, including Leo Burnett, uh, which, uh, you know, has won many, many awards for its uh, Airbnb campaign most recently. Uh, but, you know, it, it's the award show is, uh, you know, that circuit is a major aspect of the agency world. And, of course, he announced this at Cannes, you know, while, we're, while everyone's at Cannes. Uh, so it became the biggest uh, point of debate, discussion. 
And uh, Tim, I'm curious, you know, you and I actually haven't really gotten many chances to talk about this because we were kind of in the thick of, of covering it. But what was your take on on Arthur's decision to put this kind of one-year moratorium on this, I, supposedly to to limit costs, but also to just kind of look for other ways to, you know, focus their efforts rather than award shows? Well, yeah, I mean, when it, when it came out, the snooze was really just a, a, a bombshell. It's all anybody at any agency seemed to want to talk about last week uh, at the festival. And yeah, I think it is a cost-saving measure. Uh, I've heard numbers thrown around about how much Publicis spends uh, in a given year, uh, well into the millions uh, on can alone. And so, you know, listen, the awards industry is not perfect. Obviously, there's a lot of excess. There's some gaming of the system. Uh, some companies create campaigns just to win awards. But at the same time, uh, it really, you know, I think it really hurts the creative talent over at Publicis to announce this. First of all, just in morale, you know. If you create a great campaign over the next year, you're not going to win a lion for it, and you're not going to win any awards for it. Uh, that's tough on morale, and, and we heard all sorts of anecdotal stories in Ken last week about uh, people leaving the network, uh, uh, job offers into people who who immediately declined those job offers. So, you know, I think whatever uh, Sadoon's uh, ultimate goal is here to save money, um, I think that the, the you know the timing of the announcement was was fairly poor. The way it was handled was poor, as I understand it. A lot of the senior, even the senior managers uh, at uh, at publicist agencies had no idea this was coming. Uh, and then you know the rank and file. I think it's a shame for them to um, you know to to be missing out on on things that can help their career. I mean even a even a bronze lion it can can change somebody's career, and to, to not have the opportunity to do that uh, is a shame. You know, I think in the long run, I think we're, we're going to see how it really does affect uh, publicist agencies. You know, this is, we're talking about Clio's all the way through one show to Cannes next year. It's a long time to be kind of absent from the scene, from the awards show scene. And, you know, awards are a central part of the business, you know, like it or not. And in that sense, I think it is a pretty risky move uh, by our tour to do this. Um, we'll see how it works out for him in the end. But, um I, I had I had a hard time finding anybody uh, who was who was in any way positive about this, whether inside the network or outside the network last week. And I talked to several uh, global CCOs actually who were just sort of flabbergasted that he would do something like this. And you know that's uh, you know that that's coming from obviously the creative side. Um, you know whether Artur really does uh, value creativity. Uh, it's you know who knows. It's hard to say. Um, but this this did not signal to me that he was that committed to uh, t- to creativity as a way to drive business. Now maybe it's because most of his agencies, you could argue, uh, are not as cr- are not the shining stars in the business in terms of creativity. Uh, Leo Burnett being a notable exception over the last year or two, in particular. Um, but I think uh, I, I do. I wouldn't be surprised if if Publicis struggles uh, as a result of this and and starts losing talent and has trouble retaining talent. Um, but you know, he, like he said, it is, it is only a year that that's part of his caveat here. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe a year to save 20 million bucks or whatever it is, uh, will help them, you know, kickstart this Marcel thing, but, um, not a lot of happy folks, uh, in, in the creative ranks of publicists right now. Stephanie, what did you think about that when you saw that news? Well, my my first thought is that it's really a shame for the young creatives who count on these awards to catapult their careers. 
But, you know, the fact that it's only a year, you know, means that perhaps not too many people in the pipeline will be affected. I think it's it's nice that there's at least, you know, a time limit for this, that this isn't an indefinite ban. Um, but more striking to me is the way that it was rolled out. And I think a lot of people have commented on that, that this was a surprise to a lot of people um, within Publicis. And it seemed like the, the blowback was a bit of a surprise to uh, the CEO. Um, David, I thought you wrote a really interesting story about how Wyden and Kennedy considered a similar move. They ran it past employees and got really negative feedback, and they decided to scrap the idea. So I think there's a big takeaway here about, um, you know, kind of the C-suite developing these big ideas and announcing them, um, you know, in a bubble versus really getting buy-in from staff or giving staff a chance to tell you, you know, hey, this isn't the right move. Yeah, it was kind of a funny incident. It was actually one of my most kind of memorable moments at at Cannes as I was having breakfast with the Wyden and Kennedy executive team. Uh, Tim was there as well. And, you know, I'm talking to Colleen DeCourcy, the, the, you know, one of their co-heads of creative, one of the most iconic people in advertising. And, we're t- and you know, it was the first topic, to Tim's point, it's the first thing that everyone wanted to discuss. And then Sadoon, the, the CEO of Publicis, who is kind of the most buzzed about figure in the entire industry right now, uh, walks by us. <laughs> and so I, you know, I apologize to Colleen. I jump up and I go with a tape recorder and I go and I uh, interviewed Sadoon in the uh, in the hallway of this hotel. And to his credit, he was... Um, you know, he didn't brush me off. In fact, someone came and grabbed him and said, we really need to go to this meeting. And he just said, no, 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 give me a few minutes. I want to talk to this guy. And so we had a great conversation. Um, it, you know, he defended everything. He admitted, you know, he acknowledged the feedback or, you know, the the backlash to it. And he was able to make a pretty good case for most everything. I will say that personally, I, I felt the one position of his that I think is just just wrong is he said, you know, work should come to can famous and we should be rewarding effective campaigns. Uh, I you shouldn't be discovering something new at can or it's already lost. And so basically, you know, this idea that everything that wins should already be famous in the way that Fearless Girl was or some of these other big campaigns. I kind of fundamentally disagree with that. And I would say, honestly, that every juror at Cannes probably fundamentally disagrees with that because, you know, they're that's the whole joy of it. I mean, what is the fun of sitting in a locked room in one of the most beautiful places on earth, not being able to go outside and looking at work that you've already seen, you've already heard about, you you already know how you feel about it, but you still have to sit through it for hours at a time. And so several jurors told me, you know, no, the joy of this event at both both on the giving and receiving end of the jury side is, you know, getting to award things that deserve more attention, more praise, uh, but then also just discovering those things and taking them back personally and digesting it, giving those ideas to your clients. You know, if you just sit around and all you talk about is Fearless Girl, you're not going to advance the industry. You're not going to help your clients. And so that was the one area where I thought he, he really did not. Uh, kind of win me over at all in the, in the sense of defending his decision. But to your point, you know, that did spark a, a, a follow-up conversation with Wyden and Kennedy about how they've, as you said, made a very similar uh, decision or almost did. Um, but yeah, they got a huge backlash. Their motivation was a little different. They wanted to uh, find new ways to reward their staffers that weren't quite as I don't know a good word for it, just kind of gross as the award show business is. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of negatives. It breeds a lot of politics. It, it you know, a lot of favoritism or, you know what I mean? It's, it's a really kind of ugly industry in a lot of ways. It's very, very expensive. 
And so they were just looking for new ways to reward people, and they thought of it a few different things. But, you know, the phrase that Colleen used in my interview is she said, uh, you know, we were basically moving the ladder, you know, to success without replacing it with any other sort of ladder, (laughs) you know. And so they acknowledged (laughs) that they just they didn't have another good a good way. So anyway, uh, lots of discussion on that. It's it's continued to burble up even after can. uh, And I'm sure we will. uh, You know, so far, the other holding companies have said we don't agree. We're not going to dial back on that, you know, scale. But uh, we'll see. I think if nothing else, it gives them a good excuse to cut their award show budgets by, you know, 30 percent and then say, well, we're not near as bad as Publicis. Well, also in news, and uh, this just seemed like a good place to put it, Adweek has debuted our list of the most powerful women in sports for 2017. As I said at the top of the show, this is the second time we've done this. Um, And uh, so this was on the cover of our print edition this week. It's always a really fascinating list. Uh, This includes not just athletes, but also, and really, uh, of course, given who we are, uh, focuses on the the marketing world, the executives. Uh, Stephanie, I'm curious if there were any names that jumped out at you as, as being kind of interesting additions this year? Absolutely. I mean, well, a list of 35, there's so many amazing women to choose from here. Um, we got to spend a little extra time with a few of them who came in for a roundtable discussion uh, for our Women in Media and Sports event. And um, a few that stood out were, were ones who had um, actually been athletes or played in their sport before making the transition into a corporate role. So like Kate Johnson at Visa um, actually was a silver medalist uh, in in Athens 2004 Olympics as a rower uh, before she you know made, retired and made that transition. Um, also, a, a gamer, Christina Alejandra, uh, was like a lifelong gamer, and she's now running E League. So um, they they talked with us about how the things that they learned um, you know as as competitors really helped catapult their careers. Um, things like being able you know knowing how to motivate employees. Employees, knowing how to take criticism as a boss, um, you know, getting people to work as a team. So I thought that that conversation was really interesting about how you know their backgrounds really set them up for these very high-profile strategic positions. Um, in you know, we talked with women in in every major league. You know, from the uh, you know from uh, soccer to the NHL to the MLB uh, to the NFL. Um, really, all have women in these these really important roles. Yeah, I I thought that was an interesting, uh, you know, it was a trend I noticed as well, too, is that I I guess one thing that you haven't been able to miss over the last few years is that almost all the top marketing roles and a lot of the top executive roles at pretty much every major sports league are going to women, uh, which, you know, has been a a really great trend. But it, it is one of those cases where I feel like you know, at first it was the exception. And then I think these, all these leagues started realizing, like, if we're not advancing women on the same level, you know, it's one thing if the WNBA has a female leader, but when the, you know, when the NBA, when the MLB, uh, when they're starting to recognize that this isn't a boys club. And I do think, you know, I don't have any evidence of this specifically, but I do feel that there was a bit of, you know, competitive pressure, industry pressure of like watching other leagues advance a lot more women into leadership. Uh, You you know, you're going to start to feel pretty quickly like you need to do the same. I I think that's absolutely true. And it's interesting because, you know, I think we still so associate these um, leagues and these sports as being boys clubs. And a lot of it is because, you know, oftentimes the players and the coaches we're seeing on TV are 
are men. So um, it was interesting to me as someone who doesn't follow, I, I'm a pretty passive sports fan. And I found myself surprised to see, you know, that these leagues have these really fascinating women um, doing incredible work with um, data and strategy um, that we just, you know, they're there and we just don't see them. Um, but really, they are often the driving forces of these leagues. Tim, were there any that jumped out at you? Yeah, on the agency side, I thought it was nice to see uh, Stacy Fuller, the EVP of Creative at Havas Sports and Entertainment on the list. Um, this is an entity that really, I think, was only formed in April. Um, and Stacy came from uh, the content side uh, at Cake, uh, which was a Havas um, content agency. And I believe uh, Havas Sports and Entertainment was, was created through the uh, merger of Ignition, which was an experiential agency, and, and Cake. And so... I thought that was really cool. I mean, this is a, a an agency playing in that sports and entertainment space that I think uh, we'll be seeing a lot from. And then on the client side, um, Esther Garcia uh, over at uh, Tecate brand, uh, Heineken-owned brand. You know, she uh, she's uh, I thought it was funny to read her her blurb. Um, apparently, she's been taking boxing classes because Tecate is sponsoring. Um, the Canelo Alvarez Gennady uh, Golovkin fight in Vegas in September, and uh, she was also posing with boxing gloves, uh, boxing gloves in the photo too. Um, but that was a very cool. I mean, it's a very cool um, brand integration there, and uh, it was great to see Esther on the list as well. Well, great. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to check out uh, Adwick's list of the most powerful women in sports for 2017. You can go back and check out last year's too, uh, who are all pretty much still relevant. And uh, yeah, thanks to everyone on our team uh, and uh, the writer TL Stanley who who put all that together uh, as a really great package. Now we're going to move on to what is normally our ads worth watching, but uh, this week we're going to be looking back at. The hidden gems that we found at Cannes. So, Tim, I think both you and I, throughout the award show at the end of the Cannes Lions, would kind of occasionally look over at each other and just be like, I haven't seen that one. Which is <laughs> <Just> kind <laughs> right. of like the, the rarest thing to find. So, uh, tell us about some of the ones that you really noticed. Well, there are several big winners that I enjoyed. Uh, the, the Design Grand Prix went to uh, a campaign. Um, I believe it was out of the Philippines that, that had unusually shaped football fields. Uh, I think it was that was the name of the campaign. I really loved that one. It was you know finding spaces um, within Manila where um, you know it's very difficult to find any open space for kids to play there, and they they actually created these really cool, uh, unusually shaped foot, uh, soccer fields, basically where kids can play. So that was one. Um, you know, I really liked this campaign out of Ogilvy, Chicago, which I was surprised I hadn't seen it before, um, seeing that it was a U.S. agency and a pretty interesting creative campaign. It was called Portraits Completed, and it was for the shoe polish brand Kiwi, which uh, I, I hadn't heard of either, honestly. It's an S.C. Johnson brand. And so basically what this campaign did is it took uh, famous portraits um, from art history uh, everything from you know self-portraits by Van Gogh and, and Rembrandt and Cezanne and also other famous works like uh, the Mona Lisa, uh, Renoir's portrait of Jean Samory, um, Girl with a Pearl Earring um, from Vermeer. And they basically took those paintings and they made a second painting um, to put underneath that would show that person's shoes, like feet and shoes basically. And it was just really, really cool. Like the craft of it was amazing. And then they took it, so that was... I think it won a gold in, in print and outdoor just for the um, 
you know, just for, for how well crafted these, these paintings were, cause they really fit with the, with the upper, you know, the top half of the original painting. Um, but then what I really loved about it too, is they really took it into all sorts of interesting, um, multimedia extensions. They, they held a gallery show where they showed this, um, showed off the, the new works that they had done with the, you know, facsimiles of the originals on top. And they created these um, very amusing uh, audio tours uh, to go with the gallery show. And maybe we could just listen to briefly um, one of the audio snippets because they, they they're not serious at all, and they kind of work the Kiwi brand into the um, in, into the audio tour. So let's let's briefly listen to that if we can. The Mona Lisa is written about, sung about, theorized about. Her strange expression, haunting smile, and careful hand placement have led scholars to wonder: Why is she smiling? What is she thinking? Who is she looking at? And what style of shoes is she wearing? Probably Italian shoes. And if she were alive today, the best way to polish and protect those shoes would be with Kiwi products. Leonardo da Vinci, Mona Lisa, 1503. Bottom half completed by Kiwi, 2017. Kiwi, quality shoe care. And they also had uh, an AR component where you could download an app and you could uh, put it in front of certain artworks and it would show you the, the feet that they had made and everything. It was really, really interesting. So that's one I really loved. And it was also funny as a side note, uh, this is sort of just what happens at Cannes. Uh, I was walking through the Majestic um, Hotel one evening last week. I think it was the day after I'd written this story. And this woman chased me down. She's like, hey, hey, hey. And uh, it was um, Anne Mukherjee, the, the global CMO of SC Johnson. And she was just like, hey, thanks for that story. That was great. The, the team was so happy about that. It's just one of those funny environments where, you know, you write a story about SC Johnson. You've never met anyone who works there. And suddenly um, there's the CMO sort of talking about your story. So that was cool, too. Yeah, which also gets to one of these other debates people have about award shows is whether clients care. Uh, which I would argue they probably did not used to, but just in the last few years, you know, we just did a big profile of the Art Institute and, uh, you know, their uh, the Art Institute of Chicago and their, their campaign with uh, Leo Burnett, the Van Gogh B&B. And that's one where it won again at Cannes this year and creative effectiveness uh, won all sorts of stuff last year. But that's one where the client is super proud of that. And they acknowledge that the, you know, not just the initial publicity around it, but also all the awards that it's won have really kind of sparked a lot more attention uh, for them and a lot of more kind of jealousy within their industry uh, for getting that much attention. So I, I, I do think like this is a good example where the clients do care and it does benefit them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another campaign that I had never seen before that won pretty big at Cannes last week week was it was a campaign out of Peru and it was made by um, Circus Gray in Lima which is their uh, Gray's Peruvian office it was for a nonprofit called uh, Vida Mujer and basically um, I believe it was entered in the entertainment and radio categories and what they did was um, they got a Peruvian pop star named Diego Debos to create a whole new song and it was all about this, um, basically the lyrics were about this man um, kind of apologizing to his wife for kind of being a jerk. And it was this kind of like love song. And apparently uh, it was released and it kind of became a very uh, quick, um, pretty big hit on the radio. And I think for about a month or two, they, they let it sort of play. Um, and everyone just thought it was this kind of like love song from, from this man kind of apologizing to this woman. And what it turned out was um, the lyrics of the song came word for word from a letter that a man in Peru um, had written to his wife uh, after having uh, abused her in some way. And the letter was written, I believe, five days before he actually murdered her. And so it was this 
incredible campaign. And basically, um, Diego Debos came out after about a month or two and said, those of you who love this song, um, you really have to realize what this song is about. And, and the campaign, and so he explained what, what had happened to this woman. And, you know, the brief was on this campaign was really to show how dangerous, dangerous it is for women to give abusive uh, husbands a second chance. And, and the idea was to really start a conversation around this problem and, and to explain that, you know, behind beautiful words, there are often, uh, you know, ugly intentions. And I thought um, just as a, as a PSA campaign, um, as a way to get people's attention, uh, and it, it, certainly there's some misdirection here, uh, as there was in certain uh, various campaigns this year, you know, the Louise Delage Instagram campaign comes up as kind of a spiritual precursor to this. Um, but I thought it was fascinating in the way that um, it used music and popular culture um, to draw attention to you know, a really kind of difficult problem and, and a, a very specific insight into that difficult problem. And so that was a campaign, I believe it won three or four golds last week um, and, and well-deserved. It was really uh, a pretty remarkable multimedia campaign um, out of Circus Grey. I found this campaign to be incredibly unsettling, which I, th- I think is the point. Um, but for me, what was a little bit hard to swallow was the way that it essentially immortalized the words of a murderer. Um, I think the, you know, the intention was great. I think, you know, obviously they had some data driving this that, you know, a lot of women, um, you know, actually a lot of abusers are able to persuade women to stay with them by, you know, writing love notes and and being really apologetic after an attack and and that accepting that can really be to a woman's detriment. So I think that they had a great kernel of, you know, a piece of information that um, that drove the campaign. But to me, at the end of the day, you know, this this became a really popular song. And I think it was at least a week went by before they explained the origin of it. And um, it feels a little bit like it was tricking, tricking women, you know, to say, you know, buy this song or enjoy this song um, that uh, was written by a murderer. I'd much rather see like, you know, the them turn a song written by um, a woman who was the victim of domestic violence into a popular song um, and then revealing her story. For me, that might have been a nicer point of connection. But just my just my opinion on that. Yeah, it reminded me of a, a small campus campaign maybe a year ago uh, that was uh, basically quoting lyrics from popular songs, not popular songs like 30 years ago, but like popular songs right now. And and it would just be a line from the song, and then it would say something like, you know, uh, that that stalking is never okay, or you know, it was mm-hmm. like, uh, and it was kind of creepy how well it worked. So it would even quote like Adele saying, you know, I, I must have called a thousand times or whatever. You know, it's these lines that celebrate really kind of creepy behavior under the guise of, <laughs> of romantic gesture. Um, and and that was the whole point of the campaign is that like you can find one of those lines or, or a few of those lines in almost every song. Uh, and that was maybe a little little more you don't feel guilty that you've enjoyed Adele. You just kind of take a step back and say, like, yeah, that's true. You know, these mm-hmm. these lyrics are everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. And then uh, and then Tim, you've got to talk about the the one that was the, I think, the biggest head scratcher for everyone in the theater at the award <laughs> show. Where we're all just kind of like, we could not wait to find out what is this an ad for. <laughs> yeah, this was a commercial that screened um, on Saturday night in the Palais at the big at the final award show of the week, where they showed all the, the gold lion winners in film. It, it starts out with this giant like pill shaped thing on the street, and, and this traffic cop ends up kind of coming out of it. Well, I feel like we should take a step back too to say that it actually had like a note at the beginning. It said, first you need to understand." 
<laughs> that like police in Thailand are notorious for being really finicky about road, uh, what do you call it, you know, violations. Right, they'll pull you over for anything, and everybody hates them. And then there's a giant pill on the ground, with this, and this, this Thai traffic cop comes out, and he pulls a guy over, and he has this crazy conversation with him, and he does this later in the ad to someone else, and the whole thing kind of takes about three minutes, and it's, it, it's very strange. And, you, and, and it turns out, in the end, that um, it, it appears that the traffic cop is, is the personification of this diet pill, and the the motorists on the are, are I think the first guy represents fat and the second guy represents oil and he's carrying the first guy's actually carrying a bunch of fat in his car and, and the second guy's got a bunch of oil in his motorcycle and it's this giant metaphor for this diet pill that stops fat and oil from getting into your system and there's a, also like a celebrity component to this ad and it's just incredibly bizarre and I think. They got a pretty good cheer at the end, but I'm not sure how much of that cheering was just because it was so odd and they were there was a mixture of like relief and bafflement at, at the fact that this thing had been made and, and also the fact that the film jury gave it a gold, <laughs> which was <laughs> kind of crazy. But anyway, yeah, we looked at each other and we were just like, we've never seen that and that was freaking weird. Yeah, and I think it was one of those where everyone was a bit kind of... It, you almost don't like loving it because it is this like diet supplement, which is just an inherently sketchy industry. Uh, <laughs> right. But on the other hand, you could not deny the copywriting of it as they're going back and forth yeah. on like and the these little I mean, these, guys these little violations where he's like, "Why are you pulling me over?" He's like, "Listen, I'm arresting you." <laughs> they just keep going back and forth. <laughs> and in a way, I mean, it, this this commercial goes on forever. It goes on so long, and I found myself continuing to watch it just because I had to find out what the product was. And in a way, that was really genius because, you know, the minute you see it's for a diet pill, you're like, oh, you know, so if they'd, if they'd gotten to the punchline sooner, I think people would have, you know, tuned out. Um, but it, it held my attention for what it's worth. All right. Well, we've got a lot more can to talk about. So let's move into our big discussion of the week. All right, so just a real quick recap for those who aren't super familiar with Can Lions. The, these are basically the Oscars of advertising. It's the biggest award you can, uh, well, I mean, depending who you ask, but it's it's generally considered the biggest award you can win. Uh, typically, the awards, the top awards, come in a few different flavors. Uh, of course, they're bronze, silver, gold. So winning a gold is a very big deal. Uh, but the best of the best in each category is the, the Grand Prix. And then there are also some called Titanium Lions, uh, which award essentially the weirdest kind of emerging, whether it's technologies or ideas, ones that don't fit into any other category. And so they're not really graded on a bronze, silver, gold. They're just called titanium. So the titanium lines are certainly also a big deal each year. And uh, and so just wanted to give that as kind of some vocabulary of what we're going to be talking about when, when we discuss big winners. What you're typically looking at are who won the Grand Prix, who won the most golds, and who won the titanium lines. So on that note, Tim, tell us about the biggest winner of the year. Well, the biggest winner of the year by Grand Prix count uh, was Fearless Girl, which is the McCann campaign for State Street Global Advisors. Of course, everybody knows this campaign by now. It was uh, back in March. Uh, McCann put a, a statue, a bronze statue of a girl down in uh, Bowling Green Park, uh, staring down the the Wall Street bull. And, you know, basically it was a, a way to celebrate, you know, companies that put more women in leadership positions and more women on their boards of directors. Uh, the insight being that 
um, companies that have uh, more gender balanced leadership uh, actually perform better financially. And it's, it's connected to a fund that State Street has called She, which is um, basically it, it recognizes companies that do have a better gender balance on their boards and puts them, and bundles them together into a fund that you can actually uh, you can actually uh, buy. Um, so yeah, I mean everybody uh, it won in a number of categories. I believe it was PR, um, outdoor. Uh, the, it won the, the Grand Prix and the Glass Lions, and then it was also recognized uh, in the Titanium Awards uh, at, at, with the Grand Prix there too. So incredible! I mean, the the the, uh, the women who made Fearless Girl um, over at McCann, Telly Gumbiner, and Lizzie Wilson, they sat down for a video with us. Maybe we can actually listen to a snippet of that if we have time, because um, we we asked them a little bit about what it was like to be in Cannes for the first time, and uh, let's just listen to a brief snippet of that video. We would love to see her stay forever. And I think a, there's a lot of women and girls and families. I don't know, I was just down there for the first time in a couple of months. And I mean, me and my girlfriends just stood and watched the Rolodex of children and women and fathers taking their infants and propping them up on our shoulders. And one of my friends who works in activism and does a bit more politics just turned to me and she said, how could they ever take this away? Like, how could they come with these crowds and take it away? So, I mean... Right now she's permitted for a year and that's very exciting and we know that the city is on our side and is fighting for her to stay forever and we're very hopeful. So yeah, I mean, we predicted before going to Cannes that this piece would do well and it did really, really well. You know, what's remarkable to me is that it's, it's the technology could not be older. This is a bronze statue. I mean, they were making these 3,000 years ago. And to have that um, win the top award, particularly in titanium for the most forward-thinking ideas, um, that was pretty remarkable. And there's no, no doubt that that Fearless Girl kind of broke through into culture in a way that um, almost no other advertising piece did this year. So, yeah, I mean, big congrats to McCann. They won a slew of golds um, and other and silver and bronze too. So this was really the piece of the year, I would say. And I, I, I only heard one complaint about uh, Fearless Girl, which is rare. Usually, when something wins this much, uh, you know, just to give perspective, this is the second most awarded campaign ever. It's tied for second, uh, the most going, most Grand Prix going to uh, Dumb Ways to Die. Um, a, a handful of years ago, and then uh, "Sorry, I Spent It on Myself" by Harvey Nichols uh, is tied with this one. So those each got four Grand Prix. So this is a historic uh, recognition. And normally, again, when you have that many awards for something, uh, you get a lot of grumbling. The only real complaint I heard was people saying, "Yeah, but do you remember the client?" I, I mean, what do you think, Steph? Is that even a valid criticism? That you know, the reality that ninety nine percent of people who know the statue have no idea who commissioned it. I think gets to the a bit to the question about our award ceremonies useful because you know should people be creating campaigns for the buzz and for the awards and and for the attention or should they be serving a very specific client and a very specific audience and i think that there's a whole debate in there i mean personally i think that um you know it's hard to consider this anything but a success because it, it it has received so much attention to the point that I've known people who have gone out of their way to find out who was behind it just because they thought the idea was so fascinating. Um, and it's an interesting side note. It was one of the top search terms on our website last week. So the number one term was can, number two was 
publicists. Um, and, and number three was Apple, and then Fearless Girl came in. So it was clear that people were coming, throughout the award ceremony, people were coming to our site to find out information about it. Um, and it's, you know, it's been out for a, a few months. So it's interesting that, you know, that campaign has had such legs and such interest. Yeah, it was the, uh, it was the first uh, real big award show. Uh, you know, the, the one before this was was the one show, and, and Fearless Girl came out too late for the for the one show. So uh-huh. this year's Can was really the first first major award show in advertising that could that could possibly recognize Fearless Girl that she had been entered into. So uh, to do so well, I mean, uh, you know, she'll do well for the next uh, you know bunch of shows as well. The most interesting comment I got, uh, you know, I covered the tit- Fearless Girl winning the Titanium Grand Prix, and I talked to some of the jurors afterward, and they each kind of said the same thing, which is that. What's perfect about Fearless Girl is that it it balances these two seemingly uh, kind of opposite things, which is that it is both timely and permanent. And they said, you know, in advertising, you struggle to create either. So to be to to be able to pull off both. um, And and because I think if you think about responsive advertising, it feels fleeting. It feels like the kind of thing you'll do something that's responsive to the current you know, situation. And, and then five months from now, no one will care. And so the jurors really said this is something where they took something that's very important and they made a, you know, a kind of a lasting physical monument out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think in a weird way, social media is driving this swing toward creating physical, like tactile campaigns because, you know, suddenly we can, I, I don't think Fearless Girl would be what it is if people didn't want to stand next to it and pose with it and share it all over. Um, you know, when it came out, I I was seeing pictures all over my, um, you know, all over my social feeds um, from friends not in the advertising industry who were like going down to Wall Street to pose with it. So I think that's just an interesting kind of juxtaposition that, you know, this ephemeral thing that is social media is really driving um, these very artistic, concrete, um, experiential campaigns. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, the, the issue of tactile and, and sort of permanent um, was also raised by the Meet Graham piece, which, you know, it's this road safety campaign from Australia that Clemenger BBDO made. And it won, I believe it won the first Grand Prix of the week last week in, in the in the uh, Health Lions Festival. Um and likewise, it's a sculpture. It's basically this, you know, three-dimensional thing. It's a, it's a, a sort of a monstrous-looking man who, it's an imagine. It's, it's a way to imagine uh, how human beings would look if we were um, built to withstand car crashes if our bodies had had evolved as fast as our technology has evolved. And very similarly, you know, that was a, um, a very tactile piece. You know, they take this this model um, of Graham like around to schools and they show him off to kids and and uh, I'm sure various nightmares probably ensue from that. But <laughs> it's also just a it's also just a really interesting idea, you know. And and and, and you know, Meet Graham was actually recognized with the Grand Prix, one of three Grand Prix's actually that the Cyber Lions gave out this year, which you know, cyber is is supposed to be all about virtual stuff and. and and Colleen DeCourcy uh, was the was the jury president in cyber this year, and she said, you know, we saw so much stuff that that is physical now, the stuff that's being produced with a digital digital at its core, but it's actually an, sort of an experience, or it's it lives in the real world, or it's a, a model like Graham was. So I do think that um, you know, in the in the advertising business, where so much content produced now is is fleeting and ephemeral, that that something 
permanent and, and touchable is, is being really valued. I did want to uh, cover as much ground as possible, so I'm going to rattle off a few winners, uh, and you guys can definitely jump in if you have any big thoughts on these. Uh, We're the Superhumans, uh, which was a campaign from Britain's Channel 4 for their coverage of the, uh, see, what was the Paralympics, and uh, just an incredible piece of film that went into that. It was a, a it won Grand Prix in film. Uh, which is, of course, one of the most coveted uh, awards, but also it had a really incredible integrated campaign behind it where they had, uh, you know, the, the they did a fully kind of, uh, you know, like you could watch the, ad, watch the ad and it would have someone, you know, not just signing it, but uh, kind of explaining it for people who, uh, you know, who had vision impairment. And it's hard to describe uh, how much, how many components went into it, but just a really incredible, but most importantly, uh, in terms of a film, it showed all of these people with different disabilities and different body types, and they're all accomplishing these incredible things that none of us can do. And that's, of course, why it's called We're the Superhumans. Big crowd pleaser everywhere. You saw that one and definitely a huge hit uh, in winning Grand Prix in film. Uh, and then another one that was I, I was a little less aware of was the Boost Your Voice uh, by Boost Mobile and Agency 180LA. Mm-hmm. It ended up winning uh, two Grand Prix and a Titanium. And this was a campaign that uh, basically tried to convert as many uh, Boost Mobile stores as possible, which are often located in low-income areas or in minority-heavy uh, areas and inner cities, to try to convert those into polling places. Yeah, I think this campaign, this Boost campaign, was really the, after Fearless Girl, I think it was the biggest story last week, honestly, at the Alliance for, um, for a U.S. agency. You know, we thought this, we thought this campaign might do well. Uh, I don't think anyone thought it would get two Grand Prix. Uh, it won in promo and activation very early in the week, I think day one or two. And then it also won uh, the integrated uh, Grand Prix, and it picked up a Titanium Lion on Saturday night. So two big prizes for the campaign on Saturday. And, you know, the, the young uh, ACD team, uh, Brian Farkas and, and Tylin McCauley, who are on our Creative 100 this year, um, they actually, when they, when they heard on Friday that they were, um, that they had won the second Grand Prix, that they actually flew from LA to Cannes and, and they arrived on Saturday morning and we were able to kind of track them down and, and Christina Monos and I sat with them, um, right before the award show on Saturday night and chatted with them, uh, about the campaign. And I think everybody knows, um, what the campaign is. It was this, you know, boost basically turned their stores into polling sites. Um, and a lot of their stores are in low income uh, and minority areas. And, uh, you know, voter suppression uh, is, is, is quite real in those, in those places. You know, a lot, of, a lot of polling places have been shut down in those areas, and, and the ones that are open have very, very long lines during, during election days. And, you know, what I found really interesting was um, Brian and Tylin did not know about any of this issue of, of voter suppression or anything else uh, about, about uh, why folks in these areas were were, you know, not able to vote until they spoke to a colleague of theirs at 180, this woman who was a social media manager uh, who happened to be Latina and lived in one of these areas. And I think it was during late in 2015, you know, they were talking about voting and, and this woman said, well, I don't vote. And they said, well, they got in this whole conversation. And, you know, um, basically it, it, it started this whole process whereby the, the, the team started looking into this issue of voter suppression and, and got Boost Mobile involved. But it was all kickstarted by you know, uh, um, an employee who, who happened to be a minority who lived in these areas. And so I, c- I can't think of a, a better example of why, you know, agency diversity is important and having a different perspective. You know, in this case, having that perspective in your agency led d- very directly to, to your agency winning two Grand Prix. So if, if, if it's awards that, that need to motivate you, um, 
you know, having a diverse workforce can get you awards too. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, and that that was a trend that we saw a lot this week is the results of diversity were finally getting just far enough as an industry, which is not to say nearly far enough, but, you know, that you're seeing the benefits of these juries being 43% female and, and you know, not too shockingly, a lot of really uh, female empowerment uh, ads and, and ads that depict women in really interesting modern ways uh, were being honored. And then this is another good example. It's like, it's, it's, it's we kept joking, it's almost like having a diversity in your, in your workforce, you know, pays off. <laughs> in this case, it certainly did. A few other big winners on the agency front, uh, obviously every year they tally up the kind of number of wins and, and assigned point values, and they determine the agencies of the year and the networks of the year and all that. Clementer BBDO, which we were discussing, made uh, Meet Graham, uh, the, the road safety campaign. They were, they were named Agency of the Year, which is a, a huge win for them, especially since they were kind of snubbed uh, in the titanium jury. A lot of people thought Meet Graham would be a clear winner there. Um, and we have a piece on Agency Spy today about a lot of the backlash of that. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute when we talk controversies. But uh, still a very big deal for uh, Clementer BBDO. And then I think Almont BBDO, Another member of that same network uh, was uh, came in second, and then McCann. Despite all these massive wins, uh, they they actually came in third in Agency of the Year. And then we had uh, Network of the Year was BBDO, uh, and then uh, the Independent Agency of the Year yet again Droga Five, which kind of surprised me because Droga was not as big of a player this year, other than David Droga winning the Lion of Saint Mark, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, you really didn't see a ton of of. Uh, uh, you know, of Droga work taking the top honors, but there certainly was some. The New York Times work, and what, what was the other of theirs that won uh, Mailchimp won a won a Grand Prix this year in uh, in cyber. And uh, so, the, so oh, the holding company of the year, WPP, uh, not too surprising. They are just by their size alone pretty gigantic. Uh, and uh, and yeah, as I mentioned, uh, David Droga himself got the Lifetime Achievement Award, the Lion of St. Mark, and gave a really stirring, uh, very emotional speech. We actually saw him, you know, having to pause and getting a little teary, which for those of us who've known, uh, been working with Droga for a while is, is not the first thing you think of, but it was a very earnest uh, speech, and, and I thought a really good one. All right, uh, let's talk controversies. Uh, that's always one of the most fun <laughs> things coming out of Can, uh, As I mentioned, Meet Graham, uh, a lot of people felt was snubbed by Titanium and, and the integrated juries. That's actually the same jury. So uh, I'd say that gives a little credibility to that argument. And the same group people basically said that they were not for it. One of the complaints was that it was, uh, some felt it was similar to a, what, like a 1985 ad uh, about uh, the physical body that would make it safe to smoke. Uh, is that is that right, Tim? Yeah, it was called Natural Born Smoker, and it was um, created by Ridley Scott, actually directed that. And so it was sort of this monstrous figure who whose lungs were sort of set up to be able to withstand carcinogens, and he had smaller ears because he doesn't listen to good sense and things like this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. It was a weird thing. Like, I, I don't think, you know, I spoke to... Um, I spoke to one of the titanium jurors after this, after this had happened, because you know, all around Cannes on Saturday night after the show, people, a lot of Australians were sort of upset that that Meet Graham hadn't been recognized in in titanium, in particular. Um, I think I think you know it had won a couple of Grand Prix earlier in the week, and, and I think there was you know it was sort of an avant-garde piece, and I think um, they assumed it was kind of a shoe in. And one of the one of the jurors said to me, um, you know, it's not that we're not saying that Clemenger BBDO necessarily even knew about Natural Born Smoker, um, but the fact that there was there existed this piece from you know from from so long ago that was sort of eerily similar in certain ways, you know, the fact that that piece that earlier piece existed was sort of evidence that Meet Graham was not necessarily as new of an idea as many people thought it was. 
And so, you know, regardless of whether the Clemenger creatives knew about it, um, that seemed to indicate that maybe it wasn't worthy of a titanium. I think that was that was essentially the argument. Well, the, the, the quote that uh, David Lubars, the head of creative for all of BBDO around the world, uh, sent out, he said, We were greatly disappointed and surprised to learn that Meet Graham had been rejected from the integrated and titanium categories. The implication that it had drawn inspiration from a UK TV ad from over 30 years ago, aside from being preposterous, was raised and addressed at the beginning of the festival. The work then went on to be judged favorably by other juries, just as it had been judged in other award shows, such as DNAD, in which Clemenger BBDO received a black pencil for it and was named Agency of the Year. Now, I don't know if you get very far with any jury by saying, hey, another jury gave us the the award. You know, that's not necessarily the most productive way to think about it. Um, but interesting that it was enough of a controversy that Lubars had to send out a, a statement mm-hmm. on, you know, how disappointed mm-hmm. they were with not being honored. But, uh, you know, and to their credit... I think if this thing's going to win anywhere, titanium is what makes sense. And on the other side of this controversy, although it's less controversial in and of itself, is the fact that what did win a titanium is uh, the Kenzo ad, My Mutant Brain, featuring Margaret Qualley dancing around, directed by Spike Jones, uh, where she's you know dancing all over the big kind of conference center. It's an amazing ad. I mean, I love it. I, I'm sure most people love it. But it's it's a video. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's an ad. It's uh, a long-form ad. It's very uh, innovative. But it is not titanium in any way. We asked the jury about that right away when they announced the winners. They, I will say they gave some interesting responses, basically saying it's not about the medium that's being, you know, kind of new and bold. It's about the message. It's about the portrayal of women. It's, you know, all that's valid. But in the big scheme of things, I I, I think we all see titanium. The industry sees titanium as that place you recognize things that are just weird and don't fit into any category. And then on the and then meanwhile, uh, Kenzo only won silver in film, the you know, mm-hmm. the category where you would expect it to really blow up. It did very well in film craft, but in film, probably because people thought it was derivative of Spike Spike Jones's Weapon of Choice video, uh, which is, is somewhat similar. You know, who's to say? Yeah, you know, the Titanium jury um, definitely had a couple of jurors who who were very very strongly in favor of Kenzo. You know, Jamie Robinson over at Joan Creative and also uh, Jane Lynn Baden, at the CEO of Isobar Asia Pacific, they both argued very strongly for it um, that you'd never, you know, that, that you'd never seen a portrayal of a woman like this before. And in, in a certain way, they they seem to argue that that the Kenzo film was sort of the the video version of Fearless Girl almost, where you're really changing people's perception um, of what of what uh, the power of a woman means, um, which, you know, I, I can see that argument. I, I think there's. Certainly, you know, a lot of people disagree with that argument, um, but it, it does come down to a vote, you know, on the jury. And it was it got enough votes to to I think there was only three titanium lions outside of the outside of the Grand Prix. There was Fearless Girl yeah. was the Grand Prix and then uh, Boost Your Voice, uh, Refugee Nation from Ogilvy and and the Kenzo film were the other three. So it did, uh, you know, it made it into a very, very select group of pieces. So. Uh, enough enough folks on the jury, you know, b- bought their argument for sure. And then the uh, the the one other big controversy of the year was, which we already discussed, was publicists announcing they were pulling out of award shows. That uh, was certainly one where anytime you saw any executive, anytime you saw anyone from any agency, it was the first thing they wanted to talk about. It's the first thing people asked them about. Uh, so that was definitely a topic of discussion. But we talked about that one quite a bit. Well, there was also one. There was one other controversy that it was in the film craft. Uh, you know, the film craft jury chose to award its grump to a music video instead of a branded piece, which was very, very bizarre, honestly. It's a, it's a wonderful video. It's called Territory. Um, it's by um, the directors The Blaze, who also wrote the music. So these are 
are two, I believe, French uh, musicians, directors, and the, the the piece is amazing. But but to go to a marketing festival and award your 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 filmcraft Grand Prix to to a music video, I mean, I found that very odd. Uh, Where the Superhumans was was apparently the runner up, so it would have swept film and filmcraft uh, had it had it won in the latter. But they decided to give their prize to to a music video, which. To me, that's that's not the definition of what should win in filmcraft. Yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, and filmcraft is usually, honestly, the safer uh, category. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like the thing that wins there is the thing that you expect to win, and then it's in film where there's usually some kind of surprise because you know they they factor in far more than just the craft. So, unless I'm wrong, Tim, I believe last year the Phelps ad from Droga and Under Armour won in craft, right? That's right. Yeah, I just I just think that you know so many um, production companies are going to start entering their music videos now. And if if the film craft becomes sort of an MTV Video Music Awards uh, surrogate, that, that's going to be a shame. Yeah, for sure. Uh, some big themes. We've discussed most of these, um, but I wanted to cover a few. The, the way women are portrayed in marketing and advertising in powerful kind of independent uh, ways. It's not even so much about strength, which is a, is a great one. It's just about emotional complexity. Uh, so again, talking to some of the titanium jurors about why Kenzo won, uh, and you know, even beyond the people that, that uh, Tim just mentioned, you know, I talked to Chloe Gottlieb from RGA, talked to uh, John Meskel from McCann. Uh, you know, they all said the same thing, which is that it was just so great to see an ad showing women, showing a woman, you know, as as John Meskel said, losing her shit, you know, and it's in a positive way. He said, you know, men have been allowed to go crazy and vent themselves in these like physical ways in advertising for decades, but very rare that you let, a, you know, a young woman kind of break free from these societal norms and just go crazy and do things like her own way. And, and I talked to um, a creative, actually the uh, Thailand from the Boost Mobile Camp when I ran into her that night and we started talking about stuff. She said, you know what I love about that Kenzo ad is it just kind of says, you, you know, you be you. You, you do your thing and don't worry about what society thinks you should or shouldn't do or what, you know. And she said, to me, that's more powerful than just showing a bunch of like female boxers boxing, you know, that that, mm-hmm. it, that it's it's more complex. Uh, Steph, what, what do you think of that? I agree. I think that the the kind of startling and refreshing thing about that ad was seeing a woman uncomposed. And and I, I remember watching it for the first time and thinking, I've never seen a woman make that particular facial expression on screen. And that makes you that makes me realize, you know, how limited um are, you know, portrayals of women are on the screen. You know, I think women are by definition um supposed to be composed, you know, in, in so many of like the the feature films and the rom coms we see and they're supposed to make this certain expression that you see on every actress's face in every rom com and um just as an example. And so yeah, this, you know, seeing seeing a woman, like you said, totally lose her shit and and uh not have to look a certain way and to be completely physically free um is a is a really cool thing. And I, I think it is the next level of showing women in power. You know, like you said, kind of the, the super superficial two-dimensional step to showing women in power is like, yeah, you know, a woman with a boxing gloves on or, or digging a ditch or something like that. But when we can get to um, more subtle and more emotional complexity, I think that that is really, um, you know, kind of the where we should be in terms of showing um, 
women in power. A few other ads that kind of drove this home, although a bit more in the traditional space uh, of kind of athletics, athleticism, it would be uh, Dada Ding uh, for Nike, which came out of their um, their Delhi, Widen and Kennedy's Delhi office uh, in India. And uh, that was our second favorite. We named it our number two ad of last year. It certainly was my favorite ad of last year. Uh, and uh, just an incredible piece uh, and shows, you know, it goes on for a very long time. It just shows all sorts of women in India in these very different, very physical uh, environments. Really, really amazing spot with an incredible soundtrack. Uh, there was also a piece by Wyden Amsterdam uh, called What Are Girls Made Of? It's a little girl singing this song in Russia about what are girls made of. And she, she starts like slowly changing the lyrics from these soft things to resilience and independence. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, definitely was a recurring theme. And then, of course, Fearless Girl, uh, which in its own way was about this same idea as well. So that was very much a recurring theme. And again, this is the first year we've had about 43% of the juries be women. Many of the uh, jury presidents were women, very, very kind of respected and powerful women in the industry. So I really do think that was reflected in these choices. It's great to see that. Uh, one other, I guess, physical trend, visual trend was Snapchat was everywhere. So they were certainly, they did good in the uh, in the awards, uh, the spectacles, they're, you know, wearables that... that let you take pictures and are also very stylish looking. Those won three golds in, uh, I think it was two in product design and one in design. Uh, so, you know, very big win for the client there. That was all in-house. And uh, But most importantly was this gigantic Snapchat Ferris wheel. <laughs> it was like right in front of the Palais. It is the most prominent visual thing, activation, I guess, I have ever seen at any festival ever. You know, there was no way around it. It was a gigantic yellow Ferris wheel with a huge uh, Snapchat logo. Their branding was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was riding it. Um, and just a brilliant activation. Um, and Snapchat's been stepping up their game every year. I'm terrified to see what they do next year. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, did you ride the Ferris wheel? And did you Snapchat it? I wrote the Ferris wheel and I posted it to Instagram. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Most Instagrammed image of the week, the, the oh, Snapchat Ferris wheel. Oh, it was so, I felt like such a brand jacker, but like, you know, anyway. Yeah, it was, uh, the only complaint I had about the Ferris wheel was that it was a hot as hell week in Cannes. It is the hottest week I've ever seen there. And that thing was stifling inside those little cars. Like there was a little gap for the air to get through, but still, that was not the most fun few minutes of my life. But you did get a great view. Tim, why don't you tell us about any other uh, big themes you noticed? Well, I think we already talked about the the, the idea of tactile and permanent Um you know, advertising ideas that are a bit more long-lasting was a big thing. And then I found it interesting that a lot of a lot of ads, you know, focused their storytelling through individual characters, you know, Fearless Girl being the biggest example of that. Um, Meet Graham was also a character. And then Louise Delage, um, the Instagram campaign that BETC did for Addict Aid, where they created a fake persona and, and, and put her on Instagram, and she got 16,000 followers. And then I think a month or two later, they revealed that... Uh, uh, you know, it was a it was a campaign to raise awareness of alcoholism because every single photo that she posted, she was she was drinking something, and so you know this this idea of being able to tell the, the story through a particular person, a particular character, 
Um, I think that was really big this year. Well, we are about out of time. It's been a great hour, and I sure appreciate both of you uh, coming to join uh, and sharing your insights. We will have a little more uh, content coming out of Can as we kind of wrap up some of the issues that arose in some of the last uh, last minute conversations we had. Uh, so I encourage you to keep an eye on Adweek.com, and ad, I believe it's Adweek.com/slash/Can C-A-N-N-E-S. We'll get you there as well. And also, if you missed uh, the daily podcasts that we did uh, from over the course of that week, go back and give them a listen. There were five of them. We interviewed someone every day, including Ira Glass, which was pretty cool. So thanks again to Ira Glass for being on our podcast. And uh, yeah, so drop us a note. Uh, we're at Adweek on Twitter. Uh, our, we are podcast at adweek.com by email. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Our theme music is by home. And if you have not, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It means a lot to us and helps new listeners discover the podcast. All right. We'll talk soon. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.